to the DC Debrief for Friday, July 28th, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolnes, and coming up, two members of the president's cabinet grilled over the situation along the border. Lawmakers sharpen their focus on UFOs, the White House trying to help with the heat and access to mental health care, and Congress discusses the pandemic's education gap among American kids. Also, I'm going to talk with Professor Thomas Goldsby, Chair in Logistics at the Haslam College of Business at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, on the deal between UPS and the union agreed to this week and what it could mean for your bottom line. All that and more on this edition of the DC Debrief. But just a reminder before we get rolling here today to tell a friend or a family member about the DC Debrief. Help them to put it into their phones if you have to. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And if you're on Apple Podcasts and you can leave us a five-star rating and a review, uh, that would help the podcast grow quite a bit. So thank you all of you for doing that when you're able to. All right, without any further ado, let's get on to the Debrief brief for this week. Mayorkas testifies. This week, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas was grilled by Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee for what they say are his lax border policies. CBN News National Security Correspondent Caitlin Burke has more on yet another contentious House hearing. The data does show a lull after years of increased numbers at the border, but Republicans maintain the Biden administration's border policies have been a disaster. From fiscal year 2014 to the beginning of the Biden administration, there were only four months with an apprehension number higher than 100,000. But under the Biden administration, there have now been 29 straight months. Lawmakers pointed to the U.S. fentanyl crisis as one of many serious consequences to what they call an open border. Secretary Marcus, it is your responsibility to secure our border against fentanyl trafficking. The fentanyl killing thousands of Americans every year is a direct result of your dereliction. Mayorkas agreed fentanyl is a serious problem, but pointed out that it's not a new challenge. It's been escalating for more than five years. This is a scourge that all of us have to work together to combat. Democrats brushed off Republican claims of failed policies and chaos at the border, calling it political theater coming from the, quote, conservative outrage machine. Congressman Jerry Nadler, the committee's ranking member, accuses Republicans of using the hearings as a basis to impeach Secretary Mayorkas. Republicans have not established any legitimate grounds to impeach Secretary Mayorkas. They have policy disagreements with the secretary, and so do we. But policy disagreements and personal grudges are not a basis for impeachment. And as for whether Republicans are close to an impeachment proceeding against Mayorkas? There have been calls from within the GOP to impeach Mayorkas since Republicans took control of the House. There are ongoing investigations into his performance and several impeachment resolutions have actually been introduced in the House, citing Mayorkas's failure to control the southern border, thereby allowing fentanyl to spread throughout the country. Democrats say there's no evidence to support impeachment, as you heard, but Republicans do appear to be building a case. With only a four-seat majority, they would need just about every GOP vote to send an impeachment article to the Senate. And as we heard earlier, they are also considering doing that um, against President Biden. So they're going to have to have to decide here and probably only pick one person. 
Javier Becerra on unaccompanied migrants at the border. Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra was questioned about the number of unaccompanied minors in HHS custody at a House hearing this week. He says they have placed over 83,000 children with vetted sponsors over the last couple of years, 85% of those with a parent legal guardian, or close family member. Becerra was asked what exactly a vetted sponsor is. Each sponsor must submit a detailed application giving us information about their identity, their address, their relationship to the child. They must provide additional supporting documents. They must provide us with records, whether it's a birth certificate or whether it's a driver's license. They must go through background checks. However, some, like Republican Debbie Lesko, says there are some serious holes in the vetting process. How come, according to the Florida statewide grand jury documents, one single family in Austin, Texas, had more than 100 children sent to it by ORR? Another Texas address had 44 children. A third had 25. Becerra admitted that DNA testing during the vetting process is now voluntary on the part of the family members or the friends who would be taking these children in. And Republican Kat Kamek says it's only done in about 9% of cases. Congresswoman Kamek also held up a glass jar, a big glass jar, at one point during the hearing filled with what looked to be some colorful things in it. Do you know what this yes. is? Uh, looks like candies or snacks. Unfortunately, the reality is much more grim. These are wristbands that the cartels force people to wear when they cross the border. And if you're not wearing one and you cross the border, the cartels will take a limb or an appendage. This is what these people are forced to wear, and it dictates what cartel they belong to, how much they have paid. And they are absolutely a a part of the horrors of trafficking and smuggling that occurs at our southwest border. Now, these migrant children, after they're placed with these sponsors who went through the the HHS vetting process, and as Republicans on the committee were saying over and over again, the the HHS vetting process is not nearly tough enough, not nearly thorough enough, especially uh, without DNA testing, without background checks, only done in, I think, about it was a quarter of the cases. These children are often found engaged in illegal child labor, such as working in slaughterhouses or sawmills and other dangerous places. HHS checks up on minors after they're placed one month after. But the sponsors are not required to respond to HHS contact after that, essentially meaning that about a month after HHS places an unaccompanied minor with someone here in the U.S., there is no way for them to know what has happened to those children. That is something Becerra says is beyond his control and that a statute needs to be put in place by Congress changing that. A New York Times investigation back in February found the department had failed to reach more than 85,000 children over the last two years after they had after they had been placed. Democrats on the committee, however, defended the Biden administration and HHS and pointed out that GOP lawmakers had proposed a nearly 60 percent cut to the budget of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, the agency within HHS responsible for placing the children into homes. Now, on the same day that Becerra testified, Labor Department officials announced a 44 percent increase in the number of children it found to be employed illegally here in the U.S. And according to the HHS's own Office of Refugee Resettlement, more than 260,000 unaccompanied migrant children have passed through ORR in 2021 and 2022. 
Israel-Judicial Reform Reaction. Israel's Knesset pushed through the judicial reform proposals that I talked to CBN News Middle East Bureau Chief Chris Mitchell about last week. Chris is back with an update on the vote and what's next. The opposition maintains this judicial reform proposal will weaken the Supreme Court and open a path to dictatorship. Israeli author Yuval Noah Harari lays out this scenario. With the Supreme Court neutralized, the government could easily rig the elections, for example, by denying Arab citizens voting rights or by closing down all independent media outlets. Israel will still hold elections, just as Russia holds elections, but it will become a dictatorship. Yet supporters of the legislation say it reigns in a runaway Supreme Court. I came here to support democracy. Democracy means the, the rule of the government elected by the people and agreed by the people, and not a regime in which the Supreme Court takes rights that he doesn't have. Ohad Tal, a member of the coalition, tells CBN News he believes the legislation actually strengthens democracy by rebalancing Israel's government. Of course you have to have a strong court. No one doubts that. But the question is, who's going to make the policies of the country? Is it going to be a small group of people? Or is it going to be the people by their uh, representatives? The protest began more than seven months ago. But some believe the goals are more than just legislation on judicial reform. Israel's public diplomacy minister tweeted that former Prime Minister Ehud Barak, a major protest leader, aims to overthrow the government. The White House reacted to the vote this week with Karine Jean-Pierre saying something like this deserves a larger coalition of support and that the administration wished the Israeli Knesset had waited until there was more of a consensus before moving forward. UFO hearing. This week, three former military officials told a House Oversight Subcommittee that the government knows more about UFOs, or more accurately, they're now called UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, that the government knows more about these UAPs than they're letting on. During the hearing, both Republicans and Democrats were spellbound by the testimony of whistleblower David Grush, a former U.S. intelligence official, who told lawmakers He is absolutely certain the federal government is in possession of UAPs. Grush led the Defense Department's efforts to analyze reported UAP sightings, and he interviewed more than 40 witnesses during a a four-year period. He says the Pentagon was involved in a multi-decade program to collect and reconstruct crashed UAPs, and that the program was funded above congressional oversight by misappropriated funds. One of the Democrats on the committee, Representative Robert Garcia, asked Grush about whether or not the the government is actually holding these UAPs. Mr. Grush, finally, do you believe that our government is in possession of UAPs? Uh, Absolutely, based on interviewing uh, over 40 witnesses over four years. And and, and where? I know the exact locations, and, and those locations were provided to the Inspector General and some of which to the intelligence committees. I actually had the people with the firsthand knowledge um, provide a protected disclosure to the inspector general. Another one of the witnesses was former Navy fighter pilot Ryan Graves, and here he details a UAP UFO sighting that he was told about. During a training mission in Warning Area Whiskey 72, 10 miles off the coast of Virginia Beach, two F-18 Super Hornets were split by a UAP. The object, described as a dark gray or a black cube inside of a clear sphere, 
came within 50 feet of the lead aircraft and was estimated to be 5 to 15 feet in diameter. The mission commander terminated the flight immediately and returned to base. Our squadron submitted a safety report, but there was no official acknowledgment of the incident and no further mechanism to report the sightings. Soon these encounters became so frequent that aircrew would discuss the risk of UAP as part of their regular pre-flight briefs. Republican Congressman Tim Burchett following up with Ryan Graves. How do you know that these were not our aircraft? Some of the behaviors that we saw in a working area, we would see these objects uh, being at 0.0 Mach, that's zero airspeed, over certain pieces of the ground. So what that means, just like a river, if you throw a bobber in, it's going to float downstream. These objects were staying completely stationary in Category 4 hurricane winds. These same objects would then accelerate to supersonic speeds, 1.1, 1.2 Mach, uh, and they would do so in very erratic and, and quick behaviors that we don't, I don't have an explanation for. And a third witness, former Navy Commander David Fravor, talked about an encounter that he himself witnessed. All four of us, because we were in F-18Fs, so we had pilots and Wizzo in the back seat, looked down a small, saw a white tic-tac object with a longitudinal axis pointing north-south and moving very abruptly over the water like a ping-pong ball. There were no rotors, no rotor wash, or any sign of visible control surfaces like wings. As we started clockwise towards the object, my Wizzo and I decided to go down and take a closer look with the other aircraft staying in high cover to observe both us and the tic-tac. We proceeded around the circle about 90 degrees from the start of our descent, and the object, object suddenly shifted its longitudinal axis, aligned it with my aircraft, and began to climb. We continued down another 270 degrees, nose low, where the tic-tac, or we consumed 270 degrees to where the, and we went nose low to where the tic-tac would have been. Our altitude at this point was about 15,000 feet and the tic-tac was about 12,000. As we pulled nose onto the object within about a half mile of it, it rapidly accelerated in front of us and disappeared. Our wingmen, roughly 8,000 feet above us, lost contact also. We immediately turned back to see where the white water was at and it was gone also. So as we started to turn back towards the east, the controller came up and said, sir, you're not going to believe this, but that thing is at your cat point roughly 60 miles away in less than a minute. You can calculate the speed. We returned to Nimitz. We were taking off our gear. We were talking to one of my crews that was getting ready to launch. We mentioned it to them. And they went out and luckily got the video that you see, that 90-second video. What you don't see is the radar tape that was never released, and we don't know where it's at. Again, fa a fascinating hearing. If there's any one of these hearings, I mean, they're all important, but this was an absolutely fascinating hearing uh, that took place this week. But no smoking gun, no, no pictures of aliens being taken from UAPs or anything like that. But it is interesting to see Congress really is taking this topic as seriously as they have over these last few months. And it is Republicans and Democrats. This is bipartisan. Uh, Democrats and Republicans both want answers from the Pentagon on UAPs. The White House and mental health care. So this is one of those stories that I want to make sure that we, we talk about because obviously when the White House decides they want to do something, they can't necessarily do it on their own. Normally it takes an act of Congress, but one of the priorities for the White House is to make mental health care more accessible to Americans. Uh, there was a law passed in 2008. It's called the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equality Act, and it blocked large group health care plans from putting into place annual or lifetime dollar limits on mental health Benefits. Well, this week, the White House announced new rules that would proposed rules that would reinforce legislation, making sure insurance companies cover mental health benefits the same way they cover medical and surgical benefits. The president noted too many Americans have struggled to get the mental health care that they need. Some of you have dealt with this more than once. 
you get referrals to see mental health specialists. But when you make the appointment, they say, I can't see you until your doctor submits the paperwork and gets special permission from the insurance company. Give me a break. The White House says of the 21% of adults who had any mental illness in 2020, less than half of them received mental health care and fewer than one in 10 with a substance use disorder received treatment. The Biden administration's rules would seek to force insurance companies to do a better job analyzing how well they're meeting the standards laid out in that 2008 law. The White House says too often people are having a hard time finding mental health care within their insurer's network. And they say when insurers make it too hard to access mental health treatment, people will have then have to go, they'll either forego that treatment or then have to go out of network and pay far higher prices. There just aren't enough mental health uh, professionals out there in network for people to find, and sometimes the, the the wait list is eight months long before you can get in to see somebody. And so uh, the proposed rules, there's three of them, would require health plans to make changes when they are providing inadequate access to mental health care, to make it clear what health plans can and cannot do, and to close existing loopholes so that insurance companies are forced to treat mental health care with the same aggression that they do medical care and surgical care. Relief from the heat. The Biden administration announced it was taking steps to help workers deal with the extreme heat we've been experiencing in certain areas of the country, as well as other measures. CBN News White House correspondent Abigail Robertson has more on that. Biden's new measures include an updated heat hazard alert to protect workers from extreme heat, putting $7 million into improving the nation's weather forecasts and awarding $1 billion in grants to various cities to plant more trees in hopes of repelling heat. We are making progress, but as you heard today, we have a lot more work to do. The mayor of Phoenix joined President Biden remotely as our city is in the midst of record-breaking heat streaks. It's taking a real toll on our community. We, we feel like we are very much on the front lines of climate change. This month, Phoenix shattered its previous record of consecutive days with 110 degrees or greater, now at 27 days and counting. And there's not much break in the evening with consecutive days of low temperatures of 90 degrees or more. We need to work together to make sure all of us are on deck to address it. We need a whole of government approach. Gallego wants Congress to give the president authority to declare heat a disaster. As Phoenix is on track to become the first major U.S. city to reach an average monthly temperature higher than 100 degrees with no rain in 126 days. We have some of the funds. We're working. We're going to get more. And uh, I think we can make a difference. The National Weather Service reports that California's Death Valley on Sunday reached a scorching 128 degrees. And in Miami, a record 100-plus heat index for 46 days straight. Even the ocean water surrounding the southern tip of the Sunshine State is hitting triple digits, causing coral bleaching, which experts predict could lead to death of multiple reefs in the Florida Keys that serve as a barrier for the coastline during intense storms. Nearly 40% of the U.S. population is facing heat advisories this week, according to the National Weather Service. High temperatures already have scorched the southwest this month. More heat is expected in the Midwest and the Northeast here in the next coming days. Washington State won't be, uh, Washington, D.C., pardon me, will not be spared. The heat index could reach 110 degrees 
later today. This is a worldwide problem that scientists say uh, July will be the hottest month on record globally. Concerns over McConnell's health. Concerns continue to grow over the health of Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. During their weekly gathering with the press after their policy luncheons, McConnell stepped up to the podium, but then stood there as if frozen, speechless, kind of staring into space for about 40 seconds. It was a very, very uncomfortable situation. Uh, Senator John Barrasso came over at one point and helped him away from the podium, but uh, the Senate Minority Leader looked confused and, and didn't quite didn't seem to know where he was. Now, after a few minutes, McConnell came back to the podium and seemed to be better answering questions from reporters, but the video was very scary. And McConnell has had some other health concerns over the last few years, repeated instances of falling down at an airport. Uh, Also, uh, I think it was in Iceland, he also fell down on a congressional trip. McConnell suffered from polio as a young man and has always had some issues with balance and falling. But um, when he's in airports now, he's been taken to uh, being wheeled around, around in a wheel chair just when he's in large crowds. So the issues for the 81-year-old Senate minority leader seem to be growing. And this is all part of a larger conversation people are having now about the age of members of Congress and others in power in Washington. Republicans are making a very big deal about the age and uh, seeming frailty of President Biden. Now, sometimes the president can kind of get lost in uh, in his speeches. Um, has, has often has at times appeared to be confused uh, in, in large gatherings. This has become a larger story over the last few years, especially because Congress also as a whole is getting older. And this week we saw Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein appeared to be confused about what she was supposed to do during a Senate Appropriations Committee hearing on Thursday. She was supposed to just vote I or nay when her name was called, but instead she tried to start reading part of a written statement. Chairwoman Patty Murray sitting next to her was prodding her, telling her, you just vote I, simply just vote I, had to tell her three times and she still was having a hard time understanding. Finally, an aide also had to come over and tell her that it was just a simple roll call. She finally then understood and said, I. Feinstein is 90 years old. She's the oldest serving member of the U.S. Senate. And after a recent bout with shingles kept her out of the Senate for months, she has appeared in D.C. in frail health and some in her own party have called for her to step down. Mitch McConnell is, I mentioned, 81. President Biden is 80. Um, President Biden called McConnell after the incident, by the way. Now, the 118th Congress is the third oldest Since 1789, it is the second oldest Senate and third oldest House. However, it is half a year younger on average than the 117th Congress. So actually, the last Congress was even just a little bit older than this one. But there are concerns about the age of those in power, both in Congress and in the White House. And to be fair, if Donald Trump were to win the 2024 election and receive a second term, he would begin that term at 78 years old, the same age as Joe Biden when he started this term back in 2020. House education hearing on pandemic school closures and learning loss. In just a couple of weeks, most students will return to the classroom to try and continue making up the gap in learning that was lost during the school closures and remote learning of the pandemic. On Wednesday, a House Education Subcommittee invited education experts to speak about the learning loss experienced by school children since the pandemic. Chair of the subcommittee, Republican Aaron Bean, ran through a list of iconic items from the 1990s as a way to kind of illustrate his point. Talked about the different bands, the different t-shirts, the TV shows, the movies that were in 
essentially, he wanted us to be thinking about the 1990s because the educational progress of American children in schools is back to where we were in the 1990s, 25 years ago. In only a matter of two years, a generation of progress was lost. The nation's report card, uh, 2022 assessment for eighth graders found math scores are at their lowest point in two decades. The same for reading, history, and civic scores plummeted to their lowest mark since the tests were first administrated, uh, administered in the 1990s. The ranking Democrat on the subcommittee, Suzanne Bonamici, argues because of these setbacks, Now is the time to invest in public schools, not pull back, like she says Republicans want to do. It's evident that mislearning time from the pandemic has hurt students academically, socially, and emotionally. So to address this challenge and to help close the gaps, uh, we need investments in our public schools to help students catch up, to support teachers delivering high-quality instruction, to more meaningfully engage families. Uh, So instead of attacking how public schools responded to the pandemic with the information they had at the time, let's discuss how we can work together to help students and families recover equitably and effectively. Senior fellow with the American Enterprise Institute, Dr. Nat Malkus, who I actually interviewed for the Quick Start podcast. You can still find my interview with him on the CBN News YouTube page. Just either search my name or search for Dr. Nat Malkus on the CBN News YouTube page. He testified at this hearing and he said schools were too slow to reverse early decisions with regard to school closings and lost valuable time. Those very early positions that districts and states took stood the test of time even as COVID went down and up. Now, I I talked in my testimony about how there was a big political split here. A lot of this went toward a early and ossified sense in these places about what's the right way to react to the pandemic. North Carolina Superintendent of Public Instruction Catherine Truitt was asked why this is such a big deal, why we can't just make up for this education gap, this learning gap quickly. The big deal is that it's going to take multiple years to recover and some students may never recover because as Ms. Ray rightly stated, many students were behind in their academic progress when the pandemic hit, um, which one could argue is why so many parents are seeking alternatives to their neighborhood public schools. One of the witnesses, Mary Patricia Ray, a public policy consultant and mother of two from Baton Rouge, argued remote learning and other precautions kept children safe. And she was asked by Representative Bonamici about education cuts Republicans say they want. Isn't it ironic that this Congress allocated funding for those programs, recognizing that they were needed and is now about to take them away at a time when they're also screaming loudly about learning loss? Community family engagement is one of the most important things we can fund in our um, federal budget. And that's because what hasn't been mentioned up here is that children like mine, they don't have alternatives. I don't really care what Catholic schools did because none of them will serve my child. That's not a solution for me. Funding the programs that work for my family is, and I hope we do that. The Biden administration gave $130 billion to schools in its coronavirus relief package. But as one of the witnesses noted, much of that money was not spent on helping kids make up the learning gap. It was instead spent on things like bleachers and infrastructure upgrades with the schools rather than additional tutoring or overtime for teachers. At the end of the day, both sides agreed the road back will take a long time, just as it took a generation to slowly close the gap in the U.S. compared to other nations. All right, now let's get into our deep dive for this week. 
One of the things I wanted to talk about this week here on the debrief was this potential strike looming between UPS and the Teamsters Union. And as anybody who does any ordering on the internet knows, UPS generally speaking, delivers a lot of your packages to your house. And so any kind of work disruption could have been catastrophic to the economy, certainly would have been a major inconvenience for everyone. Luckily, UPS and the Teamsters have agreed to a tentative deal. Uh, but when I, I, I booked our guest to speak on the podcast, that deal hadn't been agreed to. But I'm very fortunate that, that he's here to join me to talk about what that means moving forward. So Professor Thomas Goldsby, who is a chair in logistics at the Haslam College of Business at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, joins us here on The Debrief to talk about the deal and what it means. Professor, thanks for joining me. How are you? Doing well, John. Appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. Thank you for coming on. And I think everybody breathed a sigh of relief that the deal was agreed to. And I, I understand it's it's not official. So before we talk about what's in the deal and everything like that, what, what needs to happen before this deal officially becomes real? Right. So Sean O'Brien, the Teamsters president, is going to bring the deal back to his membership. Um, we knew that yesterday was going to be a pivotal day. It had been 20 days since they were last at the negotiating table. And of course, we were getting to be uh, inside of a week of that five-year agreement uh, ceasing. And uh, But uh, right about high noon yesterday, U.S. Eastern Time, uh, Sean O'Brien emerged from the meeting. Carol Tomei, also the CEO of UPS, emerged from that meeting declaring that it was a win-win-win outcome. And uh, certainly it seems like the, the Teamsters did quite well. And... Um, Based upon the brief interaction I had with my own UPS driver this morning, there seems to be some uh, some more reception uh, in the early going to what they're hearing. Uh, we do expect uh, this uh, agreement to be uh, widely supported by the membership. Uh, and that means in about three weeks time when this vote closes, uh, you know, and, and frankly, uh, it'll be official at that time. But I don't think anyone, any of us consumers or businesses are going to witness any change other than maybe um, you know, uh, bigger, broader smiles on behalf of the UPS workers as they show up your home or workplace. Yeah, happier driver uh, dropping right. off your packages. Are you surprised that it actually got finished a week before the deadline? It seems as though in cases like this that both sides walk things up right to the finish line and like to like to look out over the edge of the cliff before both deciding not to jump. That didn't seem to be the case this time. Well, you know, it really was coming pretty close to the brink. And uh, I'll have to admit, most industry observers like myself expected it to work out just as you suggested, John, that there would not be any signing of deals, you know, weeks in advance. It really needed to go out to uh, near the finish line. But I'll have to admit, some of us were getting pretty nervous, given that it had been about 20 days since they had last negotiated. In fact, you know, the Teamsters kind of stormed away from the table, even though there were mm -hmm. suggestions that they were 95% there toward the deal. They were still holding out for part-time worker wages, pretty substantial ones at that. And uh, going into yesterday's meeting, some of us got a little bit nervous, you know, knowing that if they were not going to tie things up yesterday, there was a good chance they might storm from the table. And, and again, it takes time for these agreements to get vetted among the membership. And uh, so really, if they didn't strike a deal yesterday or reach a deal, I should say yesterday, there was some um, high propensity for strike, even if it was a few days or a few weeks in duration. If they didn't strike a deal yesterday, I, I think many of us would have been walking back our, our assertions that there would be no strike. 
So, Professor, what are the major things, the major points that the two sides have agreed on? What What are the big differences in this agreement compared to the one five years ago? Well, certainly wages and wages across the board, uh, full-time workers, part-time workers. There was something called a two-tier wage system that was very contentious. Uh, Sean O'Brien himself was very uh, vocal about wanting to get rid of that two-tier system uh, where uh, these uh, part-time workers that only work really during the week, um, they have sh- considerably shorter uh, hours and, and fewer responsibilities, but there was a dramatic drop in wages there. He wanted to rectify that. It seems like uh, that was done. You know, something that was really noteworthy to me was how hard the Teamsters fought on behalf of part-timers. Now, granted, by some estimations, that represents about 60% of the Teamsters workforce at UPS. So that's a lion's share of the workforce, but often unions are trying to migrate workers from part-time and certainly temporary workers to full-time. And so it was really noteworthy to me to say there's some acceptance certainly of that part-time workforce, but trying to elevate the wages and benefits they receive. Uh, Certainly full-time workers are also going to benefit considerably um, in in wages, benefits, holiday pay, things like that. But it was also the non-economic considerations that drew a lot of attention. About a month ago, we were all uh, intrigued with the air conditioning provision, right? And, and you see those UPS brown trucks, by the way, that's a patented color, UPS brown, no other business can use that color brown, <laughs> but it's dark and right. And those workers are wearing that same UPS brown outfit. It gets incredibly hot behind the wheel as well as in that package truck moving and, and grabbing those packages and taking them to uh, the doorsteps. And so the provision of air conditioning is, is pretty substantial. Uh, it's going to be carry a pretty hefty price tag as well in new trucks that they buy starting in 2024 and also equipping existing trucks with fans. But some of the drivers I've, I've heard say, hey, the fans aren't going to help but just circulate the hot air that's already <laughs> making their way into the cab. Uh, I think they like you, uh, the AC to be uh, uh, pervasive throughout mm-hmm. the entire fleet. Uh, but there were there were a number of things, economic and non-economic, to the tune that uh, – Sean O'Brien was saying that he got $30 billion in concessions, Mm. which is very substantial over the course of that five-year agreement. Um, Other uh, insiders say it's probably closer to $20 billion, but we all agree it's going to be a pretty hefty sum. Now, obviously, UPS is going to be paying more to drivers, and anytime there's a company that's putting out more money that's paying more to its employees, you, you wonder if that's going to affect the prices that you pay for things, that the, the consumer pays, the listener will, will pay for things. What are some of the ripple effects from this agreement? Could it cost more for us to ship through UPS? Could it cost more for businesses to ship through UPS? How Will some of these costs be passed on to the consumer, the, the business? Yeah, I think so. Uh, there's just not going to be any way for them to absorb these price increases. They're considerably higher operating expense that they're going to face and still meet shareholder needs. And and so we do believe that the pricing will carry over to the market, um, to businesses and consumers. Every fall, uh, UPS, FedEx, and other carriers in that industry issue what are called GRIs, uh, general rate increases. Last year, UPS and FedEx issued 6.9%. Uh, general rate increases. And frankly, it had many of us scratching our heads because we were seeing the freight uh, volumes softening. Uh, And so we're wondering where they would merit a price increase like that. Now, granted, those are not the prices that big 
shipping companies are going to pay to work with the likes of UPS and FedEx. They're going to negotiate substantial discounts on those rates. But to the general public uh, and smaller companies, they would face those increases. Well, we're a few months out from UPS issuing their next GRI, and we're expecting if it was 6.9% last year, what's it going to be this year? And, and there's also the belief that they're not going to be able to fully absorb the uh, increased costs with a GRI. So what we're really expecting is UPS to become even more selective of the customers they work with. We've seen this pivot over the last couple of years under CEO Carol Tomei, where they have stiff-armed some of the less lucrative uh, corners of the market, and, and it would be business-to-consumer shipping, a lot of that household delivery stuff. You might have noticed, in fact, that UPS is coming to your door less often now mm -hmm. than they were one, two, three years ago, and that's because they're choosing to work more with businesses uh, in areas like healthcare and automotive, where they can get those higher prices. And, and we expect that strategy to only further uh, coming out of this agreement. Yeah, that's interesting. I think you're right. I, I mostly see FedEx or I see Amazon trucks or, or even some in, independent folks who are delivering for, for those different uh, carriers. So um, I hadn't really noticed that before, but I think you're, you're right on the money about that for sure. And so I guess now the question is the Teamsters, they got this big deal for, for UPS. What's next? What, what group is, is next needing to agree to a new contract that the Teamsters are going to try and work this same magic with? Well, there are certainly many other parties in the transportation and logistics space. Over the last few weeks, we've been watching very closely what's been going on with Yellow Freight which is one of the three largest less than truckload carriers. Uh, they've threatened to strike uh, at yellow. Uh, they've also been facing some very difficult financial circumstances. Looks like they are going to get uh, uh, saved uh, by the bell um, because of some, uh, some, some last minute funding that's going to keep them operating a bit longer. But I suspect in that less than truckload segment, which is where the Teamsters are rather prominent, they're going to step up the fight there. But uh, we're really keeping a close eye on Amazon. Amazon has been quite effective thus far in fending off organization uh, of their workforce. Uh, you might have heard in various pockets around the country where specific locations have attempted to uh, organize and, and issued votes even. But uh, we all took note when t the Teamsters opened an Amazon division uh, mm -hmm. dedicated to trying to get uh, that monolithic company uh, organized and, and we expect there to be uh, significant overtures and given what the Teamsters gained and, and so publicly, if you will, out of this most recent negotiation with UPS, we do expect there to be some inroads, uh, if you will. It's not to suggest that it will necessarily happen uh, today, tomorrow, next year, but uh, we expect there to be some pretty significant inroads with trying to get uh, that massive workforce at Amazon. Uh, on board. So, uh, Professor, in terms of the package delivery and logistics industry, how strong a position is labor in right now, especially seeing as how they were able to avoid a strike here with the deadline still a few days away? Well, labor is certainly in the driver's seat, given that there's so much more demand for transportation and warehousing and simply not enough workforce out there. And we're talking about unemployment rates nationwide, 3.5, 3.6%. It is much lower in this segment. There is not a transportation logistics company in the nation that is not looking for more employees to either handle 
those parcels in a warehouse or to deliver them over the road. And for all the talk of automation and uh, robotization, uh, we're going to still need people uh, to do that work into the foreseeable future. I think it's many years off before we see uh, autonomous trucks. And even then, you know, you're going to need someone probably to, to bring that item right to the door. So drones, wheeled robots, all that stuff, a lot of experimentation, but I see a lot of restrictions in place legislatively to prevent that from becoming the mainstay for meeting these business needs. Professor Thomas Goldsby, Chair in Logistics at the Haslam College of Business at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Professor, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, John. Appreciate it. And now the closer. Congress is recessed for the month of August. Actually, the House and Senate won't be back in session until Tuesday, September 12th. Before leaving the nation's capital, House Chaplain Rear Admiral Margaret Kibben offered this prayer for the departing members of Congress and had a message for the rest of us as Congress takes their six-week break. We pray that in the August recess that is before this body, that you would grant to our legislators respite to their bodies, counsel to their spirits, and renewal to their souls. When year-round so much draws so necessarily and yet heavily on their energy and attention, grant them opportunity in these coming weeks to allow their minds and their souls to pause from their grueling schedules. In the quiet of these moments, may they listen for your voice, yield their wills to your will, and realign their priorities to your desired direction for their efforts. Remind the rest of us, too, to take Sabbath from the onslaught of news and media. Silence our desire for the buzzing of the latest soundbite or the thrill of the hottest political contest. Give us pause from the critique and analysis and inspire in us the compassion and concern for those whom we have elected to carry the heavy mantle of responsibility of governing our nation. Some good advice there for us all to just unplug, make sure to take that Sabbath day, although I do hope you'll squeeze in a quick debrief episode on one of those other six days during the week. Well, that'll do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Again, please make sure to tell a friend or a family member about the podcast. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating and a review to let me know what you think about the show. Thanks everybody for tuning in. I'll talk to you all next time right here on the DC Debrief. Brief.